Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello, fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello? Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. This is Little Atoms, a radio show about ideas and culture. With me, Neil Denny. On today's show, Nell Stevens on her debut novel, Briefly, A Delicious Life. Nell Stevens writes memoir and fiction. She is the author of Bleaker House and Mrs. Gaskell and Me, which won the 2019 Somerset Mom Award. She was shortlisted for the 2018 BBC National Short Story Award. Her writing has been published in the New York Times, Vogue, the Paris Review, the New York Review of Books, The Guardian, Granter and elsewhere. And she is an assistant professor in creative writing at the University of Warwick. And today we're going to be talking about Nell's debut novel, which is briefly A Delicious Life. Nell, welcome back to Little Atoms. Thank you so much for having me back. It's a great joy to be here. Tell us how you would describe the novel then. Do you know, the phrase that we've alighted on, for better or worse, is horny teenage ghost, which is sort of half the story. So it's the story of, um, in Maine, the story of George Sond and Frederick Chopin, who were, of course, these great notables of the 19th century, who, before I even began working on this, I hadn't even known that they were a couple. But at this point in time, in 1838, they are a couple. And they take a trip to Mallorca to spend a winter working and recuperating. Chopin's health is famously awful. So they think that a Mediterranean climate will help him. And, and they come to Mallorca and they end up on this hilltop monastery, um, which is anything but the sunlit holiday they had imagined. It's cold and rainy and Chopin's health is awful. And the locals all are very suspicious of them and, and grow to dislike them even more as they get to know them. So that's that's the kind of meat of the story. But the horny teenage ghost comes in as our narrator, who is Blanca, the ghost of a 14-year-old who died 300 years before. And she's watching them arrive at the monastery that she's been haunting ever since her death. And she is instantly taken with them. George Sand is this incredibly enticing figure to Blanca. And Blanca almost immediately falls in love with George. So the story is part real or kind of based in reality and part the story of Blanca, this lustful teen who can't believe her eyes when George Sond walks into her monastery. So tell us more about Blanca then, where she comes from. So she is possibly the favourite character I've ever written. Um, and she she does two things for me. One, I just adore her as a character and she was possibly the easiest writing experience I've ever had. She came so naturally on the page and and it was a really joyful thing to write her. She has her own story in the novel. She's as as a living being she was um equally horny um she she has the kind of 
affair, I suppose we could call it, with a novice at the monastery that she goes on to haunt, which we can't say too much about because it's quite, um, it's a bit spoilery if we do, but she has her own story. And then in death, she is reborn, so to speak, and she finds herself to be a ghost. She never sees another ghost. She doesn't know if that's because ghosts are all invisible to each other or whether because, you know, she's, she's the only one we don't know. And so what she has to do is observe the living. That's her afterlife. And she takes great pleasure in observing the living. She does what she can to assert some influence on them. And she finds that in death, she is a queer person. She's, she's kind of reborn as someone who is drawn to women. And, and she takes this enormous pleasure in, in this discovery. And she falls in love with women and has these kind of incredibly intense one-sided affairs one of which is, is, of course, with George Sand. And she discovers that she can see inside people's heads, which is a gift I gave to myself as a writer, to have a narrator who can do that, because she gets to be at once a, a first-person narrator and, in that sense, also an, an omniscient narrator, right? She can, she can see what people are thinking. She can see their past. So she can look inside their heads and, and see their memories and, and what they've been through. And via that device, we see quite a lot of Chopin and George's history and George's two kids who are with her on the island. And she can also see their futures. She describes it as like turning a page in a book. She can, once she's inside someone's head, she can look forward and, and she can see everything that's going to happen. And she rapidly learns that this is a terrible thing to do because it makes her life incredibly boring because she knows everything that's going to happen. And she has to go through it twice and more slowly. So for most of the book, she's resisting the urge to find out what happens next, but she does have that power. And so she's... In lots of ways, she's just a really glorious device for me as a writer to get into the story and explore the characters as greedily as possible to, you know, get everything I can from them. But she's also a real person. She's very, very real to me. And I'm always very suspicious when writers say that, but <laughs> this is the case. She's, she's a real person to me and, and I really believe in her and, and she has her own foibles and, and quirks and, and she has her own story as well in the novel. Yeah, I wanted to talk more about where this idea to use her comes from, because, you know, you, you said this yourself, but, you know, I was going to ask about the fact that he clearly, although she is the first person narrator of this story, she works in exactly the same way as a as an omniscient narrator would, right. or, you know, sort of third person, sort of God view narrator, able to enter everybody's heads and see exactly what is going on. So just expand on that a little bit more. Sure. So she wasn't the first thing that arrived to me about the story. I was writing a Commission, a very strange commission for a Polish hotel. They'd asked for a, a short story about the sounds of Warsaw. So I'd gone off to Warsaw and <laughs> written this story about Chopin because anyone who's been to Warsaw will know that that is the sound of Warsaw. You can't really escape Chopin's music. So I'd been writing some other fiction about Chopin. And in the course of that, I'd come across this information about this winter in Mallorca. And I knew at once, oh, I, I have to write that book. I know I want to write that book. But I, I also knew that I was not the kind of writer who could write a kind of straight up third person, atmospheric, serious historical novel. I mean, I can almost see the covers of that book and see what that book would be. And I know I'm not the right writer for it. I'd love to read it, but it wasn't going to be the thing that I could write. I had to find a sort of more slippery or playful way into stories that I tell. So I, was, I knew I needed something else as well as that story. I also wanted to preserve, to an extent, the voice of my first two books. I feel as though I sort of taught myself to write when I wrote the first two books. And a huge part of that lesson was, was about voice and about preserving in those two books, a kind of version of my own voice. I published as memoir. They're in the first person. They have a degree of informality. They have a degree of humor in them. And that 
was so vital for me in unlocking what what I could do as a writer and who I am as a writer. And I needed that. I needed a first person voice that felt contemporary and fresh. And Blanca was the answer to that, right? Because she is outside of time. So she didn't need to speak like a, a 19th century or a 15th century person, which is originally what she was. She could speak like you or I could speak. And that really helped unlock the book. And then I felt like, you know what? I'm already at the point of I've got a ghost in the story. And I sort of believe in ghosts, but in a slightly kind of high concept way. <laughs> so I thought, you know, I, I'm allowed to do whatever I want. And why not have Blanca be this perfect God narrator who can see the story? Because for me, the parallels between ghosts and writers are just obvious and there. And, you know, every ghost in every story is a literary device, right? It's <laughs> every ghost is memory and every ghost is trauma or history or revenge manifest. It's always got that kind of literary element. And so I wanted to just have all of the fun I could with it and take every advantage that she could offer me to make the story what it could be. And obviously Miyoka is, you know, it's far away from Warsaw and this is far away from a book about Chopin as well, really. It's not, although that's where it sort of started, this is not Chopin's story at all, is it? It's obviously Blanca's story and much more a story about George Sand. And we see, we're able to see... Obviously, in a first-person narration, we would only see our opinion of Chopin through Blanca's eyes, but because we get to see him through everybody else's eyes as well, he's, he's like a bit of a dick, really. <laughs> it's not like... We do not get at this point in history, obviously, when he is not the, you know, the world historical figure who we will become in the future, really any impression of the man that people think of Chopin now, he just seems like, like an annoying guy. Uh, it's so interesting because I think, you know, my route in was Chopin, as I described. And I think a lot of people who see the blurb of the book think Chopin, he's the name, you know, he's he's more famous than George Sand, and, and he's the name that jumps out at people that they have a relationship with already. It's not Chopin's story. It is certainly Blanca's and Blanca's fascination is directed predominantly at George. So her interest in Chopin as is in this person who is in George's life and who George cares for. So there is that triangulation and he's certainly not the top of the pyramid there. I didn't mean to make him sound like a dick, but I did mean to make him sound as crotchety and self-obsessed and needy and demanding as I honestly think we all are when we're deeply unwell. <laughs> uh, maybe other people are much better patients than I am, but I do think that illness and chronic illness makes people really, really, it's really difficult to get outside of your own body and outside of your own head. And I was thinking about that a lot when I was writing Chopin and also about genius, right? That he, he, I love Chopin's music beyond reason, really. For me, the best way I can describe it is like being really thirsty and suddenly getting a glass of cold water to listen to, to some Chopin. I love it. And, I, and for that reason, I love him. And that was the kind of interesting challenge for me in the book was to, to show how incredibly capable he was of making what to me is just... It is just beautiful work. And the relationship between our, our human selves and our artistic output and the gulf that is sometimes between those two things. There's a moment when Blanca writes that the best of Chopin is in his music, that that's where his tenderness is and that's where his humanness is. And he can escape the sort of irritations and agonies of his body and his life in the music. So I hope that comes through alongside the, the more demanding more I mean he can he can be quite 
petulant. He can be quite childlike at times. If you read Chopin's letters, they're extraordinary in how much he felt comfortable asking of his friends, for example. And he asks a lot of the people in his life and he asks a lot of George. And so Blanca, as George's defender, sees that and notes that and doesn't love that. But he, he makes this extraordinary work. And she, see, she sees that too. And I hope a reader of the novel sees that too. Well, I think what I meant was that reading up now, because again, I, I was also not aware that, in fact, I, I was barely aware of George Sand at all, to be honest, but was not aware that they were in a relationship and doing a brief read of Wikipedia or whatever, as well as reading the novel, there seems very much to be nowadays this sort of, or, or not necessarily nowadays, but grew up after you know, in the years after their death, this sort of idea that she'd basically, like, driven him to an early grave or something. And in the novel, we see much more that almost she is, you know, she is sacrificing her life and her artistic talent to basically, like, raise this giant toddler. <laughs> and, um, and I thought that was really well done. But, um, yeah, so, I, as I said, I, I was not that familiar with... You know, I knew the name, but not really any of the works when I looked at them. So tell us something about who George Sand was. So she, she's so difficult to sum up because she, I think the more I know about her, the more I understand her to be this phenomenally complicated person. And I think the fact that she was so complicated and that she is so hard to describe pithily is why we end up with lesbian in trousers as maybe the thing that we we think of when we think of George Thorne that was certainly kind of I had cross-dresser I had maybe a pipe or a cigar you know as my first very hazy ideas of who she was before I came to know her better and in fact she was she's just an extraordinarily (laughs) complex person she was a prolific writer you know, I don't know how anyone writes a single novel longhand, you know, by pen, <laughs> let alone that with the speed and, and dexterity that she did. She, she writes huge numbers of novels. She married at normal age, young, and then both her husband and she have affairs and she hates her marriage by the end of it and she leaves. And she moves to Paris. She leaves her kids and starts an affair with another writer, a poet called Jules Sandeau. Sondo, I think, and they co-write with, if you could see me, you'd see lots of air quotes around co-write because there is some disagreement about how much he actually contributed to the first novel. They co-write this book, does brilliantly, and, and they come up with this name to put on the cover, which is a little bit of his name, Sond. And then she takes off and she does it by herself and she writes these novels. The reason she wears men's clothing, initially at least, was to get a cheap ticket to the theatre that men could get much cheaper access if they just stood at the front. And so she dressed as a man so she could see more plays. And that, that was the reason. It wasn't initially, at least, a hugely deliberate, provocative act. But she was provocative and she was political and she was fanatical about the things she cared about. And she took lovers and, and she did probably take at least one female lover that we know of. I would call it and say, yes, absolutely. Um, but I'm always in favour of probably assuming people had more sex than what they wrote about in general in history. That's my take. I think she probably did have female lovers, but she also had lots of male lovers and one of whom was Chopin. They were together a long time, surprising all time, years and years they spent together. And she cared for him deeply. And she has this strange way of writing about her lovers sometimes where she, she describes herself almost in maternal terms to them. She enjoys mothering her lovers and 
And of course, she had ample opportunity to do that with Chopin because he was so ill so much of the time. And I think that's hard to square with the image that we have of her sometimes, of this kind of provocative, outrageous, cross-dressing, smoking character. But she, she loved taking care of the people she loved. And of course, loved it and resented it at the same time, which probably anyone who's a parent will recognise that conflict. So she had this, this caring relationship with Chopin. Without wanting to give too much away, their relationship does eventually unravel tragically and horribly. And biographers are not kind to Sond, as you know, Neil, they're not kind to Sond in this, in this story and, and historically haven't been. And even, you know, reading earlier biographies of Sond for, for this project, I was shocked by the way that she's described. And it is just old fashioned misogyny. I, I think it is as simple as that, that this person who did not play by the rules, who left her husband, was not always around her kids. Her poor kids bounce around a lot in their childhood. <laughs> So she's not an easy figure to kind of, she's not an easy figure. And and her biographers even make her sound sort of craven and amoral. And and she really was not those things. And still, contemporary biographies of Chopin still lean that way, still lean towards portraying her as, yes, essentially the person who drove him to an early grave. I feel really confident in saying that was absolutely not the case. Their relationship did disintegrate and it was awful um I think for everyone involved it was it was deeply deeply traumatic but for so much of their relationship she was present and caring and and sacrificed a lot for him hiring for your small business if you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn you're looking in the wrong place that's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. You're listening to Little Atoms. I'm Neil Denny. Today I'm talking to Nell Stevens, and we're talking about her novel, Briefly, A Delicious Life. And now let's go to, to Valdemosa, which is the um, hill village in Mallorca. And you've been there to research it. Tell us what it's like now. I had a kind of fortuitous accident in, in researching Valdemosa, which is that my second book, um, Mrs. Gaspar Me, won a prize called the Somerset Mom Award, which comes with some money which was earmarked for travel for research for a project. So it was this wonderful gift that meant I could go and and spend some time in Valdemosa. And the error I made, the lovely error I made, was to go in the summer, (laughs) which I think was the Valdemosa that 
George and Chopin imagined they would get. And it is truly, truly idyllic. It is unbelievably beautiful. I'd not been to Mallorca before. Probably the strongest association I had was was Love Island, right? (laughs) Um, And Valdemosa is not that. It is just a really, really beautiful hilltop village. And it was warm and sunlit and the food was wonderful. And I had the opposite experience to what George describes in she wrote a book about her time there called Winter in Mallorca. She did not have fun. And she wrote, writes this really bad tempered crotchety book about it afterwards. But of course, they went in the winter. And then by the time it was winter and I was ready to go back to have my winter Valdemosa experience, COVID was with us and travel was not possible. So <laughs> my Valdemosa will always be this sunlit idyll. But when George and Chopin went, they had a little bit of that at the beginning when they arrived in November. And then rapidly winter descends and and the weather turns. And it was not hard to imagine if you visit the monastery, the charred house where they stayed, it is right on the top of this hill. It's not hard to imagine how bleak it would be in the winter, in storms, in bad weather, when there's, you know, less abundance of food, for example. It's, It's a very remote place. That was the Valdemosa that George and Chopin ended up in, this small community who were not accustomed to the kinds of visitors that George and and Chopin were. They didn't go to mass and that scandalised them. And then they found out they weren't married and that scandalised them. And the children um, were a little bit wild. George's order Solange also dresses in boys' clothing. And they're just grievance upon grievance for the locals who who become increasingly hostile to them. On top of, of the anxieties they had about Chopin's illness, that they thought or discovered because we don't exactly know whether he did have it they thought he had consumption and fear of contagion and spreads through the village and and that contagion is is about the illness but it's also about their kind of perceived amorality as a unwed couple living together and it's a rest it's a kind of recipe for a very very disastrous day and a lot of the shape of the book is drawn from that this increasing hostility They had trouble getting food. The locals didn't want to sell them food. They got ripped off all the time. That forms some of the arc of the narrative is is just watching this idyll, imagined idyll, evaporate before George's eyes into something very, very different. When you look on, you know, Google Maps for this place, I looked it up to see if it was actually a real place. And, you know, it comes up, you know, Chopin's Monastery. (laughs) So, like, clearly now they're... um... They're happy to cash in on that. But how do they deal with the fact there that, you know, they were not welcome originally? Do you know, it, it's not mentioned. They have these, extra- maybe, in fact, this is their revenge. They have these extraordinary wax figures of Chopin and George in the Charter House, <laughs> which are the most terrifying statues I think I've ever seen. They are absolutely appalling. Um, so maybe a little bit of revenge there. But in general, they celebrate them. They have a, a small museum in the cell in the chart house where they stayed. You can even buy George's very rude book about them, <laughs> A Winter in Mallorca, um, at you know, almost every shop. That's certainly you know, their claim to fame. And there's kind of all sorts of interesting squabbles about Chopin's piano and where it is and who owns it. But there's a piano in the, in the cell. And, and they have, I don't know if they still have, but certainly at various points had Chopin festivals and things. This was, you know, in the, in the kind of story they've told since, a really important part of their history. I don't think they necessarily did much wrong. I think, you know, this was a, a community that was completely disrupted by people who were 
utterly unsympathetic to their way of life. And that was one of the things I was interested in the book is that kind of, well, culture clash, right? It's something that we see. I was thinking about it even in the context of Brexit, right? How do we think about these kind of different communities and different values and who has power in different ways? And, and that was something that I was pondering in the book is you know, what happens when foreigners arrive and behave differently, right? Who's at fault and what kinds of dramas arise from that? But now it seems like a very happy story that they tell and lots of people visit just to be in this monastery, um, which is, it is an extraordinary place. If you can visit, please do, because it, it's beautiful and it's atmospheric and it's strange and you can really get a sense of, I mean, lots hasn't changed. <laughs> you can really get a sense of how it was. And just finally, and, and this is sort of an inevitable question these days, but obviously, as, as you've already mentioned, you were writing the book during the pandemic and that interfered with travel plans. But also in the book, everybody suspects that Chopin has consumption, but also the book details a a cholera epidemic that was that's happening in Paris during the time when when George was living there. So just tell us something about the process of writing this book during the pandemic. Yeah, I mean, it was it's absolutely is a it's a pandemic book. I'm sure there will be a kind of maybe with some time we'll be able to look back and identify all of the traits of the books that we all wrote during that time. So it was written predominantly in lockdown. I was that kind of undergoing twin confinements as it were because I was also pregnant and I'm a very very grumpy pregnant person I didn't like it at all Um, and I think that played into the book as well in lots of ways you know directly and indirectly in thinking about kind of illness and and discomfort (laughs) and bodies Um, but the book it was written in our very little flat um, my wife and I on top of each other and there are, yeah, there are definitely moments in the book where I was thinking very overtly about contagion and fear and illness. And that's there, but also probably on a broader scale about isolation, right? All of these different people are isolated in their own ways. And, and Blanca, the narrator, is, is isolated most of all because, of course, she, she can't be seen and, and she is truly, truly alone. So in lots of ways, it is a book about aloneness, but it's also a book about love. It's a book about finding connection and finding each other, which was certainly my experience of the pandemic as well, was about the surprising ways that people made connections across distance and, and through barriers. And I, and I think that's, that's there as well, and hopefully in quite a joyful way. To finish it off, can I get you to read us a bit? Yeah, sure. I'm going to read the beginning, I think, um, just so I don't have to explain anything. So this is the opening. It's a chapter called Two Men Kissing. Of course, it wasn't the first time I'd seen two men kissing. It was 1838, and I had been at the Charter House in Val de Mossa for over three centuries by then. I'd seen hundreds of monks arrive, kiss each other, and die, but still, the sight of these two stopped me in my tracks. The men, slight bodies, bony, both very short, standing amongst rotting pomegranates and flies in the overgrown garden of one of the abandoned cells, were gripping each other's faces, hands like masks, There was a smell of fermentation rising from the ground and it gave the scene, the lovers, the kiss, a fizzy, too hot quality. Sweat had worked its way through the shirt and jacket of the smaller one, spreading darkly between his shoulder blades. It was November, but still warm. The weather had yet to turn. The taller man trailed his fingers along the other's neck and let them drape over his shoulder. The hand was very pale as though it rarely saw the sun and surprisingly broad below a narrow, snappable wrist. Fine bones pressed against the skin, splayed like a wing. Thick muscle curved around the base of the thumb. The fingers looked heavy, the way they hung faintly blue from rounded knuckles. 
A bird startled in the tree above them and flew off, dislodging a little flurry of feathers and leaves, and both men looked up, as though expecting bad news. Three hundred years earlier, I'd seen Brother Tomas with Brother Matteo in that very same garden, beard against beard and the clatter of rosary beads hitting the paving stones. A decade or so after that, there was the boy from the village who sold bad oranges with the boy in the kitchens who made bad preserves. Around the turn of the 16th century, there was a complex triangulation amongst brothers Augusta, Miguel and Simone, and so on. Over the years, countless combinations, differing ages, differing levels of urgency and tenderness, but always more or less the same. The kissing and the gripping, and so often the very same skittishness, the entirely justified fear of being found out the creeping sensation that they were being watched. The point is, I was used to seeing habits fall from shoulders, formations of body hair on chests, backs, buttocks, etc. I enjoyed it. It was comforting. These, after all, were not the sort of men I worried about. It was the others, the ones who had fewer secrets, that kept me on my toes. What surprised me was the presence of these lovers in the garden at all. There had been no monks at the charter house since the government seized it from the church three years before and sent them all away. That morning, I'd gone into the garden to try my hand at swatting fruit from the branches of one of the taller trees, and after that, to sneak up on the starlings and howl, which would send them into the air together like a single giant bird. I had it all planned out and was not prepared, not prepared at all, to come across unfamiliar, uninvited lovers. Eventually, they stepped back from one another. The smaller one readjusted his jacket and turned his head to the side. My first view of his face... Plump lips, dark eyes, long lashes, glossy black curls pinned back. Cheeks pink in the heat. Sweat on the temples. Which was when I realised that it was not a man after all. It was a woman dressed as a man. Which was the second great surprise of my morning. So I've been talking to Nell Stevens. We've been talking about her debut novel, Briefly A Delicious Life, which is out in the UK from Picador. Nell, thank you so much for sharing it with us. Thank you so much for having me. It's been a real pleasure to talk to you now. This episode of Little Atoms was produced, presented and edited by me, Neil Denny. Little Atoms is hosted by Acast and published by 89up. The show is broadcast on Mondays and Saturdays on Resonance 104.4 FM. Thanks for listening. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com.